0: Let's open our copies of God's Word, please, to the New Testament book of Romans. We've taken an extended break from our verse-by-verse study of Romans. We began one year ago last Sunday. It was a long and uphill journey through the first eight chapters of Romans. It began with uh, Paul's expressing his love for the believers in the city of Rome and his desire to be with them personally, although that was impossible at that time. And he declared that he was not ashamed of the gospel. From there, he launched into an indictment of all humanity, including all of us. He was like a courtroom lawyer, prosecuting attorney, bringing charges against all humanity. Man, Paul says, has rejected his creator and his revelation, and he's gone his own way. The history of man, Paul says, is not upwardly evolving, as many of us were taught, but it's downwardly spiraling into deeper and deeper forms of depravity, until it will come one day to its logical conclusion. And that logical conclusion is that God gives man what he wants. Oftentimes that's how simple God's judgment is. He turns man over to his own devices. Man wants to be the captain of his own destiny. God turns him over to a depraved mind and the actions of depraved minds. And Paul concludes that all men are without excuse before God, their creator and judge. And speaking of God's judgment, Paul declares that because of our sin, Man is storing up wrath against the day of wrath. And I take that to mean it's like a a dam that is holding back water. And year after year, the water gets deeper and deeper and more pressure and one day the dam will burst and destruction will follow thereafter. Paul says that everyone is guilty and he includes both groups of people that he thinks about, Jews and Greeks. In Paul's mind, those were the two classifications of people. You're the Jew or you're a Greek, and he says both are guilty before God. He goes to great lengths to show that. Every time we think Paul is just about finished bringing indictments against us, he hits us one more time. Until mercifully, he comes to chapter 3, verse 21. Listen to it. He says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift of His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, who God displayed publicly as a propitiation or a satisfaction in His blood through faith. Paul gloriously states that Jew and Greek, yes, are guilty and deserving of God's wrath, but yes, Jew and Greek can be saved and reconciled to God by the same blood of Jesus. He speaks there of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, and specifically the doctrine of justification by faith. In fact, if I could put a theme over the entire book of Romans, that would be it, justification by faith. Finally, three chapters and a half in, we have some relief, some hope for our condition. And now from 321 through chapter 8, where we finished last spring, Paul expounds on the doctrine of justification. How a man or woman, a boy or a girl, can be made right with a holy God. No wonder so many of us in this church learn to share our faith and evangelize through what we call the Roman road. Just walking through the book of Romans, leading people to faith. And it's not any different than we taught you this summer in our evangelism class. God, man, Christ response. Paul began with God's creation of the universe and man's rejection of God's authority over his life. God loved the world so much that he sent Christ in the world to live a perfect life and die in our place. And and then man's responsibility is to uh, believe on Christ, trust in him through childlike faith. That is the gospel. Well, chapter 7 explains in great detail the gospel. In fact, it talks about the implication of when a person is saved and born again that we are in Christ, that we are united to Christ in a way that's hard to explain. We camped out several weeks there and into chapter 8. And Chapter 8, in my opinion, is the mountaintop of all of the Bible, particularly verse 1, which says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a glorious truth. The fact that nothing can separate a true Christian from God and from salvation. And we rejoiced, didn't we, as we admired the golden chain of redemption in the heart and mind of the Trinity before time itself. Listen to Romans 8, 29. For those he foreknew, that is, those he set his saving love upon in the past, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many believers and many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these he called, he also justified. And these he justified, he also glorified. That's God's plan of redemption. We finished up the first half of Romans last spring by explaining Paul's great declaration of assurance in verses 37 through 9. I'd encourage you to memorize these three verses. But in all these things, Paul says, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, Will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. amen. Now the preacher of Ecclesiastes said, there's a time for everything under the sun. In our time to rest and reflect on the first half of Romans is over. It's time to pick up our pack and get moving again through the next half of the, ch- of the book. And what awaits us is exciting intellectually. It's challenging theologically. Lord willing, over the next 18 Sundays will be in Romans chapter 9 through 11. Romans 9 through 11 is likely, certainly, not likely, certainly, the most debated and disagreed upon section of Scripture in all the Bible. So we need to have a lot of grace with one another. We need to be prayerful, patient, open-minded. We're going to be challenged together as the Lord teaches us about His sovereignty over all things. Are you interested? I am. Let's begin by reading our text. Romans 9, 1 through 5. I am telling the truth in Christ, Paul says. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, and to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. The title of the message today is what about Israel? That really is the question that Paul is seeking to answer in the next three chapters. The church in Rome was likely founded by Jewish converts who returned to Rome after being converted on the day of Pentecost. But as was the case in many of the larger cities of that day, the vast majority of the new Christian converts were not coming out of Judaism. Rather, they were Gentiles coming out of pagan and often polytheistic cultures. Paul was an apostle, he said, sent to the Gentiles to teach them, to evangelize them, and to train them. Because Paul was Jewish and incredibly zealously committed to Judaism before his conversion, some were apparently accusing him of turning his back on his fellow Jews some question that Paul addresses in this section concerning his relationship with Israel, that is God's relationship with Israel. Specifically these. What are the implications of the obvious fact that most Jewish people reject Jesus? We'll admit that, right? Most Jewish people do not accept Jesus as their Messiah, and they never have. Has God's word failed? That's one possibility that Paul has to deal with. Has God been unable to fulfill his promises? Is God unjust that he saves some and not everybody? Is God unfair to hold anyone accountable for their own sins? Most specifically, Paul wants to answer the question, does God have a future plan for the nation of Israel? Now, These are just some of the questions we'll examine in weeks ahead. For today, Paul strikes a very personal note. He is refuting in these five verses an accusation that he has turned his back on his countrymen, and even that he hates them. That, of course, is the farthest thing from the truth. First, let's look at Paul's grief over Israel's rejection of Christ. Verse one, I am telling the truth, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Now I wonder what breaks your heart. What causes you to grieve over the long term? For some, I know it's the death of a loved one. You've shared that with me. Maybe it happened decades ago. It's just something that you've had trouble moving past. For some of us, it's the direction of our nation that we see broadcast across our television screens on a daily basis. Many of you older than me who remember a different time grieve at the direction of our nation. But what broke Paul's heart was the rejection of Jesus by his countrymen, the Jews. The reality that for many of our fellow Keller residents, our co-workers, our neighbors, our classmates on the road to hell ought to break our hearts. We ought not to be able to read Bible passages about God's wrath and judgment and hear sermons on hell without grief for the lost. But I confess sometimes we can and even do. We talk about God's judgment and wrath, and we're unmoved emotionally. James Montgomery Boyce is a now passed away preacher that I admire and read everything I can from him. He often told this story about a church he once visited, and he asked one of the deacons who was his host about the history of their pastors. And he said, well, our first pastor told us we were all going to hell, so we fired him. We hired another pastor and we said, what does he tell you? He says, we're going to hell. He said, but you don't fire him. He says, why not? He said, when our first pastor said we were going to hell, he sounded glad about it. (laughs) And when our present pastor tells us we're going to hell, he sounds like it is breaking his heart. What breaks your heart? The lostness of Israel broke the apostle Paul's heart. Paul's relationship with his fellow Jews was very complicated. You might recall that at one time in his life he was their leader. He described himself in his own resume as a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as touching the law blameless of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul, just like his peers, could trace his ancestry. He was very proud of it. He was a person who outstripped his peers in zeal for the things of God, namely the Old Covenant. But one day, on his way to persecute Christians, he was struck blind by the glory of the risen Christ. And he was radically converted. And as sometimes happens, when a person's life is radically changed by God, their peers and loved ones misunderstand. Paul was viewed as a traitor and a turncoat. His relationship with Gentiles was brought into question. He was bringing Gentiles around to the holy city and to the temple, and they didn't like it. In fact, it caused such a conflict that it ultimately came to a head. That's recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 23, verse 12 and 13 says, When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 informed of this plot. There were 40 men guys that Paul grew up with, he likely went to seminary with, hated him so much that they said, we will not rest under a blood oath until he is dead. This was much more than a minor theological disagreement. And this division caused Paul much personal pain. Look at verse two. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This was more than a temporary throbbing pain that would soon go away or could be alleviated with two aspirants this was a constant anguish of heart in the deepest recesses of his emotions it went with him everywhere he went because everywhere he went he was faced with the same accusations remember first he would go to the synagogue and preach to the Jew first and then to the Greek and in some of these synagogues some believed and some didn't and some they were hostile to him some of them drove him outside of town and some of them even tried to take his life but he was hounded by these accusations of heresy, specifically the heresy of antinomianism. The word antinomian means against the law. And when these Jews heard the gospel, they said, well, Paul, you're saying the the law is not important, or you're trying to do away with Moses. Moses was their hero, and they would spent all their life studying to learn to interpret the law, and Paul seems to be setting the law aside. And they said, you're an antinomian, you're against the law, this is going to lead to chaos. There were further personal accusations of Paul was uh, an anti-Semite. Isn't that ironic? A man who called himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews, accused of hating Jewish people. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The truth was that he was hated by his peers for loving them enough to tell them the truth. That has not changed to this day. Sometimes people will hate you for loving them enough to tell them the truth. Adrian Rogers used to say, though, and I agree with him, he'd say, I, I'd rather be hated for telling the truth than loved for telling a lie. And Paul would rather be hated by his countrymen for telling them the truth than loved by them for telling them a lie. So secondly, let's look at Paul's great love for his kinsmen. Verse 3, he said, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now I have a very personal confession if you won't tell anybody. I don't like that verse. It's not because I don't believe it's true. I think Paul is perfectly sincere in what he says. I don't like this verse because truthfully I can't relate to it very well. I'm not there. I don't know about you. I don't love anyone or anything enough to be cut off from Christ for their sake. Now, most of us are willing to go through some pain, inconvenience, maybe even make what the world would call major sacrifices for those we love. My wife had our four children. I was amazed that she kept having them. (laughs) I've often said, if men had to have babies, we'd have a lot of single child families Mothers come near death, giving their children birth. Fathers, if they're good ones, every day, thereafter put their children's need ahead of their own. We make sacrifices for those we love. We can relate to that much. We even have had families in our church donate organs from their own bodies to save their children's life. Occasionally you'll hear about someone who, who literally dies so that their loved one may live. and we admire those kind of things, but Surely Paul doesn't mean what it sounds like he said—that he's willing to be a curse from Christ. Maybe he means something a little different. Maybe he's willing to take on a charging rhinoceros or a rollaway bus for the sake of Israel. Maybe that's what he means—he's willing to die. Well, Paul was willing to die, and he did for the gospel. That's not what it says. And the reason this verse makes me so uncomfortable is because I know what it says in the Greek. Paul says he's willing to be a curse from Christ. Let me say it very clearly. He's saying he's willing to be damned to hell for the sake of his countrymen. Now we know this is hypothetical. It's not possible. Paul couches it in terms of the hypothetical. We know this because don't forget Paul's the one who wrote chapter eight, which is all about how we can't lose our salvation, that he will hold us fast and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not even death. And I would add, not even our emotional attachment to those we love most. Nothing will separate us from them. You can't lose your salvation. Paul knew that. And yet in his heart, in his emotions, he was so grieved for Israel that he had to say it. If he could, he would trade places. Paul is emphasizing here his sincere, constant, and ever-present grief over the lostness of his countrymen. Now, I have fits and starts of grief over the loss, lostness in our city. Don't you? There are times when I pass by people on the street and sitting in a grocery store line or in a cafe and I look across the table and say, that person is bound for either hell or heaven. I ask the Lord to increase my burden for the lost, but I cannot say yet that I have sincere constant and ever-present grief for the lost in this country. I should, but I don't. Well, why did Paul feel it necessary to hammer home his love for Israel with such a declaration? Remember, he's using terms like, I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. He knows that people will doubt the sincerity and the veracity of such an outrageous claim. Well, I think it's because he knows He's been hard on them in this book of Romans. And he's been hard on them in his preaching. And, and he knows that their anger is real. Just how hard was Paul on them? Well, turn back to chapter 2. Remember the first part of chapter 2, Paul is inviting Gentiles. He's showing how the pagans are guilty. And I remember when I was preaching chapter 2 here, I, I, I told you, imagine Paul's Jewish peers he went to seminary with and Paul's up there pounding the pulpit telling how all the Gentiles are going to hell and they're saying, amen, Brother Paul. You tell them, you tell those Gentiles they're going to hell. And then in verse 17, he makes a radical shift. And he turns his attention away from the Gentiles towards Jewish people. And it gets very personal. He uses that transitional conjunction. But if you bear the name Jew... And rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness. Paul is just reflecting, I think, of his own attitude before he was saved. He was not viewing himself as groping around in theological darkness. He was a bright, shining light. Everyone told him that. Paul, you're the one. He was on the path to theological fame And then he saw Jesus as he was. Instead of being a a leader, he became a blind man, totally dependent upon the Lord. And he saw all of his peers in the same way. Verse 20 says, you think of yourself as a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature. You have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach, one shall not steal. Do you steal You know you're not supposed to commit adultery. Don't you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God, now verse 24, highlight it, mark it. Here's his real point. He could not have said anything more harsh, more telling, more painful to the Jews than what he's about to say. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, this isn't something new. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Paul felt it necessary to hammer home his love for Israel because he's had to say some very hard things to them. And I say to my preaching interns here, you can say some really hard things to your congregation one day if they know you love them. But if you are aloof from the people in their time of hurt, when you don't visit them in the hospital and you're not there for them when their parents die, When it's time to get up and say thus says the Lord and you say some very hard things about their own sin, it's gonna be hard if they don't believe you love them. And Paul is reminding them he's doing this out of love. I do love you and this is why I have to say these things to you. Paul never once denied the fact that the nation of Israel was chosen by God. They were chosen to be the channel of blessings through which all the nations of the world would be blessed. But instead, Paul says, their disobedience had caused them to have the name of God profaned wherever they went. This broke his heart. And to let them know, he remembers where he came from. He's not one of these guys who goes off and comes out of poverty and makes it big and forgets where he came from. He's saying, I know exactly where you are. And he recognizes in verses 4 and 5, Israel's great advantages in the world. Speaking of Israel, he says, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is overall, God bless forever, amen. So in rapid fire staccato fashion, Paul is listing all of the great benefits that they have for being God's chosen people. It goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant when God chose this pagan named Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and told him to go to a land that I will show you. And he, over time, progressively revealed to him more and more of his plan and ultimately gave him the Abrahamic covenant and told him that I'm going to give you the land and I'm going to make your name great and your descendants are going to be more numerous than the sands on the seashore. Later, on a clear night, he called him to go outside of his tent and look into the heavens, and he said, your descendants will be more than the stars that are in heaven. That truth struck me this summer on vacation. We were on a beach in North Carolina, sand as far as as you could see. I was reminded of this promise. I also read an article recently about a new telescope that has been sent out beyond where any telescope has been able to see before. And it's starting to send back these incredible images of outer space. And all the scientists are amazed. Why? Because they said space is infinitely larger than we ever imagined. And I read a leading expert in astronomy that said he believes that there are more stars in the universe than there are sand on the seashore. That's the greatness of our God, and it's the greatness, the promise that he made to Israel. Paul's not belittling that. He understands the weightiness of what he's saying, and he begins to list these advantages. First of all, he says, to whom belongs the adoption as sons. God has related to the Jews and to Israel differently than he has any other group in human history. He doesn't keep them aloof. He draws them in and makes promises to them of an inheritance. They still have this promise of the land today that he is one day going to rule and reign among them. This is a promise to a son, not an acquaintance, not not an enemy. That's how God dealt with him as children. And he says to them also belong the glory. Now, what in the world could he mean by that? Because we know The word glory in both testaments is the manifestation of God's presence with brilliant light. I was reading in my Bible reading just recently of how God prescribed to the Israelites when they were roaming in the desert, escaping Egypt before they got to the promised land. How they were to build a tabernacle and how its dimensions were to be just so and they had a holy place where God's glory dwelt. And they were to stay there until he told them to leave. And when Solomon built the permanent temple there in Jerusalem, how God's glory filled the temple. God's glory was present in a very tangible way that was never present in any other group of people on earth. He says they have the covenants. Covenants are contracts or promises that God made to them. And he has not gone back on any of those yet. And then he says they had the law. And that, friends, is where the rubber meets the road. Paul's peers were lawyers in the strictest sense of the term. They studied the law day and night. That's what the Pharisees did. They rolled it over in their minds. They debated it. They discussed it. They added to it, unfortunately, which was one of their great sins. Put burdens upon the people that God never intended to And so they, for them, it was a bridge too far. They felt like Paul was putting down the law, that thing they'd built their life on. He also gave them the temple worship. They were so proud to go to Jerusalem up on the hill and they admired the architecture of the temple. They loved to go in and out of its rooms and its gates and gather there to pray, to give their alms, to be seen of others. They admired the symbolism of it, that God was on their side. And then he says, verse 5, whose are the fathers, plural. He's talking about the patriarchs. The great men of the women of the Old Testament, many of whom are listed in Hebrews in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses and Aaron, David, and Solomon. These great men that they told stories to the children about. They were proud that they could chase Trace their genealogical records back for centuries, and they knew which tribe they were from and to whom they belonged. These are great and incredible advantages and privileges, but there's one more that Paul saves that's the greatest privilege that the nation of Israel has. Look at verse 5. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? What does he say? The greatest promise that God gave Israel is that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed, namely that God was going to send the Messiah. See, what God was doing in preserving those millions of Jewish slaves in Egypt, he was preserving the Messiah that was to come. And and one day when the time was right, at just the right time, the scripture says he broke into human history, born a Jew according to the flesh, and we know that he was uh, divine. But according to the flesh, he was Jewish. How do we know? Because there are two genealogical records of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, and both of them are Jewish, right? The book of Matthew, starting with Abraham, all the way to Joseph, we find this genealogical record. This is Paul's statement. I understand how painful this is for you. I understand that you think that I've turned my back on you. I understand that you think I'm antinomian, but I'm not. I have been born again by the blood of Jesus, and I want you to be. That's Paul's point. Paul affirms all of these advantages, but we're still left with the question. If those things are true, and they are, if the Jews have this relationship through the covenant of sonship, if they saw his glory face to face, if they have all these covenant promises, they have the Mosaic law, they have the temple, they have all the promises of God, they have the reputation and the history of the patriarchs, they know that the Messiah is going to come through them, why did they not bow the knee to Jesus? That's the question Paul has to deal with because that's what even some of the Gentiles were saying. Paul, you're telling us that Jesus is the Messiah, yet your own people by and large, rejected him. He certainly must not be the Messiah. And that's what Paul does for the next three chapters. He answers these objections and questions, just like that one. Why did the Jews not accept him? Because in God's sovereignty, he was allowing the Gentiles to be brought in. There's two words I want you to keep in mind as we seek to answer these questions about Israel. Today's question is, what about Israel? Remember these two words, partial and temporary. See, Paul had to admit that from the human eye, in a historical perspective, it seems as if Israel has been set aside by God, right? He's not using them primarily today to bring glory to himself. He's using the church, which is made up almost all, not all, but almost all, of Gentiles. And and so cynics would say, well, this proves Jesus isn't Messiah. Paul says, no, it doesn't prove that at all. In fact, Paul harkens back to Old Testament history to prove his point that this hardening of Israel is only partial and it's only temporary. Partial means not totally, right? Now, let me just ask you, and the answer is incredibly obvious, don't overthink this. How do we know that the hardening of Israel is only partial? That it doesn't include everybody? because Paul's Jewish, right? He said, I'm Jewish. And in fact, those 3,000 people that were saved in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost were certainly most all, if not all, Jewish. And they went back to start churches. The the original 12 apostles were Jewish. So it's a a hardening, but not total. It's partial. And he goes back to Elijah as his example here. You remember when Elijah was walking the fields of Israel? They had a wicked king who had married an alien wife who brought in strange gods, namely Baal. And she brought her priest with her from overseas and all the people to win her favor started worshiping Baal. I say all, many of them. It came to the point where Elijah called a prayer meeting up on Mount Carmel and they built an altar and they sacrificed to a bull. And he said, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna find out today who's really God. He told the priest of Baal to pray to Baal And if he was God, he'd send fire from heaven and consume the sacrifice. And they prayed and had all sorts of incantations and remonstrations and nothing. When they finally were so fatigued they couldn't pray anymore, Elijah said, it's my turn. And he told them to pour water over the altar and sacrifice and filled the trench around. And he called down fire from heaven and God heard his prayer and consumed the wood, the animal, and even lapped up the water in the ditch. It was a great victory for God and for Elijah, you would think. But instead of doing a victory lap, he went into hiding because he knew Jezebel wanted his head. In fact, he became so distraught, he went out to pray to God. He said, God, I'm the only one left that loves you in the whole land. You know what God said to him? No, you're not. There's 7,000 others that have not bowed the knee. See, It's always been the case, as Paul's point, that not nearly the majority of Jews were truly believers. There's always been a remnant. And I bet you, if we went around and did a poll today, almost all of us know a few Jewish Christians. Not hundreds, but we all know a few. And in every generation, there's been that remnant of believers And I don't want to give away the ending yet because 18 weeks from now we're going to be in chapter 11 and we're going to answer the question, is God finished with Israel? And the answer is a clear no. Paul says one day there's going to be a great revival and end gathering of Israel. So what should we do in the meantime? We ought to pray for our Jewish friend's salvation. There are not two gospels. There's not a gospel for Jews and a gospel for for Gentiles. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Paul's whole point in the first half of Romans, that both Jew and Gentile, all humanity, are invited and are awaiting God's justice, but whoever will believe, Jew or Gentile, will be saved. Amen? And so let's pray for our Jewish acquaintances and friends that they'll be saved. Let's pray for our Gentile friends and neighbors the same. And let's ask God to give us a burden for souls. I can't imagine ever getting to the point where Paul was, that he'd be willing to give up his own salvation for others, but let's pray that we get somewhere close to that, right? That the Lord would make us see every human being we pass on the street every day as a potential trophy of His grace. And then let's ask the Lord to give us boldness to tell them the truth. We're not naive naive enough to think that when we tell people the truth, they're all gonna love us. They didn't, Paul. They didn't Jesus. Jesus says a servant's not better than his master. We must do what we're called to do and that's take the gospel to the nations, including Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, it's crystal clear that uh, Paul was brokenhearted over the lostness of his kinfolk. Father, sometimes we can be aloof distant when we talk about holy things. We can even be guilty of preaching on hell with a cold heart, forgive me, Lord. Father, would you give us a burden for souls, Jew or Gentile, man or woman, boy or girl, poor, or rich, educated or ignorant, Lord, every person will spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. Help us to live in that reality every day. Help it to inform the way we have conversations and the way we order our days. Father, you promise in the Bible that uh, those who bless Israel, you will bless. And those that curse Israel, you will curse. I, I pray for our government, Lord, that we'll believe that. Father, I pray for this great revival that you say is coming in the end time where all Israel will be saved. Lord, we long to see it. Would you do it for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.